Thank you, Lord, uh, for the special lesson that we have before us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would, um, in a special way, anoint our look at this most significant passage of the Scripture. We know, Lord, that there's no way that we can possibly do this passage the justice it deserves, unless we probably would spend at least a year on it. John 3.16 alone we could spend many lessons on. But, Father, I pray that your Spirit would take the Word of God and use it as only He can do in each life that is here this morning. And, Father, I pray that, again, you would hide your servant behind the words and the works of Jesus Christ, that he alone would be uplifted, because we know that when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Lord, just have your will and way in each life here, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are on lesson number 16, A Night with Nicodemus in our Life of Christ study. God created our earth with various kingdoms of life. The lowest and most simple realm of life is what we would call the kingdom of vegetable life, if you can see that up here on this chart. This kingdom consists of all types of fungi and mosses and grasses, plants, flowers, and trees. Then the kingdom, this kingdom of vegetable life, is separated from, by an impassable gulf from another kingdom, which is known as the kingdom of animal life, which includes all living things, from your most microscopic water organisms to the largest animals and mammals that you can think of. Then separated from the animal kingdom by another impassable gulf is the kingdom of the mind and soul, or the kingdom of man. Man alone in all of the animal world has the capability about, you know, thinking of a god. Is there a god? He, he alone has the capacity to think about his creator. Only man, only the human being, has a conscience and the ability to reason. And only man has the ability to appreciate the aesthetic things of life, like the beauty of a daffodil, the beauty of cre his crea created world around him, to uh, appreciate music or literature or poetry, those sort of things. Man alone has emotions, a will, and a soul. But even higher than the kingdom of man, there is yet another kingdom, and it is the kingdom of the spiritual and eternal. And it is referred to in the scripture throughout as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of mankind, right here, into which humans are physically born, is just as much separated from the kingdom of the spiritual and the eternal as the vegetable kingdom is separated from the animal kingdom. It would be, in other words, just as difficult for a daffodil to turn into a toad frog as it would be for that which is born of flesh to become spirit. Furthermore, just as there is no entrance into the kingdom of flesh, the kingdom of man, without being born by a natural birth, a physical natural birth, neither is there any entrance into the spirit life the kingdom of God, except a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, be, uh, have a spiritual birth. They have to be born spiritually. Therefore, if the natural man or woman desires to enter into the kingdom of God and receive eternal spiritual life, he or she must be born again. Exactly. Jesus, of course, who is the one who spoke those words, ye must be born again, was speaking not of an option. 
here. He was speaking of an imperative, a command. If one wants to get from this kingdom to this kingdom, the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God, he must be born again. In the recorded scripture, the Lord Jesus only used the word must five times. He only said must five times. And two of those times are in the uh, critical John chapter 3, born again chapter. So that tells you right there how important this chapter is in the scripture. And that discussion of a man or a woman needing to be born again is the uh, subject matter of our lesson this morning entitled, A Night with Nicodemus. You know, after Jesus cleansed the temple, we looked at in our study last week, he went throughout Jerusalem performing many miracles, and we were told that many people believed in his name. That was John 2.23. However, they merely believed in him because of the miracles, right? These people did not have true repentant, saving faith, and therefore we learned that Jesus did not commit himself to them. However, apparently there was at least one man who witnessed some of Christ's miracles, and he may even have been present when Jesus cleansed the temple. We don't know about that, but we do know that he apparently heard about or witnessed some of the Lord's miracles, and he was so impressed with Jesus that he sought to have further enlightenment from him. And his name was what? Nicodemus. And he was a very prestigious man in Israel, as we will learn this morning. It was from that nighttime interview with Nicodemus that Jesus revealed God's plan of the new birth and how this plan is accomplished. The Lord's words in John chapter 3 are probably the most important words that he ever spoke because they are the words that tell you and I how we may enter into the ultimate supreme kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now our outline for this lesson, which I've already lost, here we go consists of five divisions. I hope we will have time to get to the last one, but I've already prefaced (laughs) this lesson by telling you we may not. I didn't yesterday, so we just kind of breezed through them, but we will be looking at the seeking teacher, and that is, speaking of Nicodemus, then we'll quickly look at the solitary ticket. There is only one way to heaven. Then we'll talk about the sad tragedy, and that is that Nicodemus didn't get it. He will, he does later on, but he didn't get it here. And um, then we'll talk about a very interesting serpent type And hopefully we'll get to the salvation truth. So that's where we're going. Let's look at, first of all, at verses 1 and 2, the seeking teacher. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Nicodemus, first thing we find out about this man is that he was a very important man in Israel. He was both a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews, which indicates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the the ecclesiastical council of Israel, which ruled over Israel. And if you look down at verse 10, we learn that Jesus called him a master of Israel, which indicates that he was a leading and highly respected and knowledgeable teacher among the Jewish people. And it's interesting that although he was a Jew, of course, and even a Pharisee, yet he had a Greek name. And that just goes to show us the influence that the conquering nations had over the Israelites, the Jewish people. Here was a Pharisee with a Greek name. His name in Greek consists of two words. We have uh, Niki, 
If you've ever bought Nike shoes, it comes from the Greek word Niki, which means victor or ruler. And then it also consists of the word Dimos. In Greek, the D is not pronounced like D. It's a hard T-H. Dimos. And that means people. For example, a democracy is a government of the people. So if you put those two words together, Niki and Dimos, you have Nikodimos. And it means ruler of the people or victor over the people. And that's exactly what Jesus, uh, what verse 1 says he was. So his name meant what he was. Very interesting. He was a ruler of the people. Now, rabbinical writings, this is extra-biblical writings, tell us further that he was one of the wealthiest men in Israel. And we really kind of pick up on this from the scripture because of the fact that when he went with Joseph of Arimathea to bury the Lord, he was the one who brought a 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe with him. And we know Joseph was very wealthy. He had a rich man's tomb. Nicodemus was extremely wealthy to be able to uh, afford 100 pounds of myrrh and aloe. But rabbinical writings do tell us that he was very rich. He was also a very religious man, obviously, because he was a member of the sect of the Pharisees, and they were religious to the extreme. (laughs) They were meticulously strict about keeping the laws, as well as all the rules and regulations, which... uh, had been added to the laws over the years. They were the conservative religionists. We've talked about the Pharisees compared to the Sadducees, and they were the Pharisees were the conservative ones who held to a divine inspiration of the Old Testament scriptures, which was good. That's good. They held they, they believed the Old Testament was God inspired. They also were the ones who kept alive the the Jewish hope for a coming Messiah. The one major flaw with the Pharisees is that they externalized religion. So Nicodemus was, quote, unquote, the best that that kind of culture, Jewish culture, culture could produce in that day. He was considered by most Jewish people a man who had become victorious over life. If anybody had it all together, it would be a man such as Nicodemus. By the way, he was probably old, older, because of the fact that he says later on to Jesus, he says, can't be born when he is old. He was probably old also to be a a master teacher in Israel. That would have taken some years for man, so don't picture him as some young guy. But he was considered by most Jews one of those who had been victorious in life, just like his name, a victor over the people. Yet even such a religiously and culturally esteemed man as Nicodemus was totally incapable of entering into the kingdom of God based on anything that he was or based on anything that he could or had accomplished on his own. His birth and his breeding, his high moral standards, his religious training, his high level of education, his social status, his material worth, his knowledge of biblical truths, his faithful attention to the the temple and uh, to his religious duties could do nothing whatsoever to get him into the kingdom of the spiritual and the eternal. Now, another thing that we are told about Nicodemus is that although he sought light, he sought enlightenment from Jesus, but when did he seek that light? At night. He sought light at night. And this fact seems to make it apparent that he did not come to Jesus as an official representative of the Sanhedrin, 
You know, they didn't send him out to inquire of Jesus regarding his person. Are you the Messiah? They didn't send him officially to to check out his signs and miracles and, and figure out exactly who he was, or he wouldn't have come at night, probably. Now, we can only surmise, therefore, that Nicodemus went to Jesus for his own personal reasons. Because John, the author of this gospel, reminds us that Nicodemus first came to Jesus at night, in each of the other two passages that John writes about Nicodemus, and John is the only one who ever tells us about Nicodemus. We wouldn't learn about him from anybody else. But three times John tells us about Nicodemus. The other two times that he is mentioned, he always reminds us, this is Nicodemus, the one, remember, who came at night when he originally came to Jesus. Also, because Nicodemus is associated with Joseph of Arimathea, they obviously were friends, and Joseph is described by the uh, gospel writer as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, And because the mention of night throughout John's gospel, in such passages as uh, John 1, 5, John 9, 4, 11, 10, 13, 30, when John speaks of night, it is usually associated with dark and sinful overtones. So because of those three things, we conclude, or at least I can, I conclude, you can have other ideas on this, but I conclude that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night to keep his visit a secret from his religious peers. Now, by slipping out under cover of the darkness of night to have a private interview with Jesus, Nicodemus presented to us yet another picture of the spiritual condition of Israel at the time of Christ's ministry. For Israel, it was nighttime. You know, Israel was spiritually in the dark, just like Nicodemus, the best she could produce, you know, the religious leader. Just like him, Israel was devoid of spiritual understanding. Its prestigious members of the Sanhedrin had no real comprehension of heavenly things of God which occur internally. You know, they always looked at everything religiously externally. What the Holy Spirit seems to have done in the three accounts of John's gospel which mentioned Nicodemus was to emphasize the progressive boldness of his actions because they indicate his spiritual path from darkness into the light of truth. You know, just as a physical birth is a progressive process from the darkness of the mother's womb into the light of the world. And that's what we seem to see here with Nicodemus's spiritual birth. He's progressively going from darkness to light. First of all, of course, he went to Jesus under the dark cover of night. When Nicodemus left Jesus that night, he was still in the darkness. But he'd had some light shed on him, but he was still in darkness. We don't see him getting saved in John chapter 3. The second time we hear of Nicodemus, and that's where I just had that picture up there a minute ago, he spoke out on behalf of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Thus we find that he was beginning to come out of the darkness. He wasn't super bold in that situation, but at least he spoke out somewhat, partially. But fear still kept him from emerging fully into the light. Then the last time... John mentions Nicodemus, he showed himself in broad daylight. 
Jesus died at three o'clock. It was daylight. They, Joseph went to ask for the body from Pilate, and then he, together with Nicodemus, buried or put the Lord Jesus, wrapped him up, and put him in the tomb. And that was in broad daylight. So we see the progressive birth, the spiritual birth of Nicodemus in those three accounts that John gives to us of him. But we don't see him getting saved in John chapter 3. Um, but it's obvious in John chapter 3 that the Spirit of God had begun. You know, the Spirit of God was working on Nicodemus. He was beginning to convict him and pull, draw him to, to, to the Lord Jesus. He had begun to do a work in his heart, which eventually did draw Jesus, Nicodemus to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And we do have to at least commend him that even, even if he did come by night, at least he came, right? At least he came. And, and we have to commend him for that. We don't hear about any other Pharisee coming to Jesus or any other religious ruler for that matter. No other Pharisee ever came to Jesus at any time. Even, you know, Saul, who later became Paul, he was a Pharisee. And he didn't come to Jesus, did he? Jesus came to him on the road to Damascus. Now, Nicodemus had a lot of preconceived ideas and um, religious prejudices to work out. His mindset had not been trained in a, or it had been trained in a works system of religion, which essentially taught that it was necessary to work one's way into the presence of God by keeping the law, as well as all the rabbinical rules and traditions and regulations and ceremonies, etc., uh, so concepts such as grace and the new birth were totally new to Nicodemus's thinking, even though they shouldn't have been, because there are passages in the Old Testament which speak of such things, such as in Genesis 15:6, Psalm 32:1 to 2, Psalm 51:10, Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27, etc. But uh, if a person has been brainwashed in a works system you know, that you have to work your way to heaven, then the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone is very foreign to that person's thinking. Often, he's going to need time to sort of sort things out and, and work, work, hopefully work, at uh, looking at the scripture to see what it actually does teach about justification by faith and not by works. Now, in spite of Nicodemus's high position, he did not come to Jesus with a condescending attitude, which is good. He showed Jesus respect by calling him rabbi. That's a title of honor students give to their teachers. So he was really, this was commendable. He was putting himself in the position of a student as he sought to learn more about Jesus and about his perspective on spiritual matters. His words, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. You see that in verse 2. Those words indicate that there were others, you know, uh, who had also discussed the miraculous works of Jesus and had apparently agreed with Nicodemus that there had to be a godly nature to Christ's mission. I don't know who he's speaking of when he says, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, but perhaps it was Joseph of Arimathea. Maybe the two, because they were buddies, and they were both in the Sanhedrin together. Maybe they had discussed these things. Or we do know that there were other, thank the Lord, there were other Pharisees, and there were other priests who eventually did get saved. So there were other men in the religious hierarchy of Israel 
who the Holy Spirit was already beginning to work on their hearts. So perhaps that's who he meant when he said we. However, saying, you know, we know that you are a teacher come from God, that, that faith was far from complete faith. Because they, whoever they were, were merely believing him to be, Jesus to be inspired after the manner of an Old Testament prophet, sort of. You know, we know that you're a man come from God, just like the prophets. But Jesus was far more than just a great teacher and great prophet, was he not? He was the son of God, so didn't quite get that yet. But admitting that Jesus was a teacher come from God was really quite a concession for Nicodemus to make as a Pharisee and as a, a ruler in the Sanhedrin. The vast majority of his peers would look down their long, pious noses at a Galilean carpenter, you know, a commoner who had not been taught in their prestigious rabbinical schools. According to the religious hierarchy of the day, those facts along, alone would have uh, disqualified Jesus from being taken seriously at all as a divine messenger of any sort. They would never have considered him. So considering the situation, we do have to give Nicodemus quite a bit of credit for seeking truth through both the maze and the confusion and the corruption of the Judaistic uh, ceremonial system in which he had been thoroughly immersed and through the social and cultural, cultural barriers which kept back the interest of the vast majority of Israel's other religious elite. So we do need to commend him for being humble enough to seek Jesus out and to have at least enough interest in uh, finding out more about him. Now, the reason Nicodemus gave for having concluded that Jesus was a teacher come from God is presented at the end of verse 2. And what is it? For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. He was here, you know, saying, I know you came from God, or we know you came from God, because of the miracles that we see you do have done. And he was certainly doing better than those who saw the Lord's miracles and rejected them as proof that Jesus was a godly, uh, on a godly mission. He was certainly doing better than those who concluded that those miracles were done in the power of Satan. And he was doing better, too, than those, like we looked at last week, who saw miracles and then said, well, we want to see some more. Give us a sign. All right, that's all I'm going to speak about. The, solit uh, the seeking teacher, let's move on now and look at the solitary ticket, verses 3 to 8. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. How did the Lord Jesus receive Nicodemus? He received him, didn't he? He did not refuse an audience with him, even though it was night, and he had probably had a very, very busy and full day. 
going about teaching and healing among the multitudes in Jerusalem. One of the great truths about the Lord Jesus Christ that we'll see over and over again as we study his life is that there is no unacceptable time for the sinner to seek him out. He is always, always readily available. And that's one wonderful thing about Jesus. Well, there's a lot of wonderful things about Jesus. John 2.25 told us that Jesus did not need the testimony of any man with regard to what that man was thinking because Jesus omnisciently knows the mind and heart of every man. So he knew the real thoughts that were going on in Nicodemus's mind. He knew that which was uppermost in the heart and the mind of Nicodemus. And this is why he didn't address what Nicodemus had said. Nicodemus said, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. And it sounds kind of funny that all of a sudden Jesus is verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again. Can't see the kingdom of God. He didn't address what Nicodemus had said. Rather, he um, addressed what Nicodemus was thinking. Jesus spoke directly to Nicodemus about that which was uppermost in his mind. Nicodemus, you see, knew that the Old Testament required righteousness as a prerequisite for entrance into the kingdom of God. He was a man who had spent his whole life devoted to the matters of the law. And he was probably continuously concerned about the issue of how a man could be righteous before the law when no one was able to perfectly keep the law. It was impossible. And I'm sure his whole life he had tried to keep it meticulously and knew how he failed and fell short of doing that. So the con- this was, and this was the concern, this was the whole thrust of his life. His real inner question, which Jesus knew because he is omniscient, he knows everything, even though he hadn't expressed it, this was his real inner concern. How can a person enter into God's kingdom? How righteous do I have to be to know with confidence that I am going to go to heaven? How can anyone fully satisfy the demands of the law? If ever anyone had a reason to believe that he might be a candidate for entering into the kingdom of God, it would have been a man such as Nicodemus. I mean, he had been born of the, in the chosen He was of the chosen nation, Israel. He had been born of the chosen people, the Jews. And uh, just like the Apostle Paul, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, he was a Pharisee. It says these things about Paul. As touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Doesn't mean he was not born with sin. He was born with sin, but he tried the best as he could to be righteous according to the law. So if ever there was any man who could think with some kind of confidence that he could enter into the kingdom of God, it would be a man such as Nicodemus, just like the Apostle Paul, at least according to the Jews' thinking. So the Lord's response to his foremost concern must have been shocking as well. Well, we know it was confusing to Nicodemus. Directly, emphatically, and very authoritatively, Jesus said to him, Verily, verily. And whenever Jesus says verily, verily, which he does 25 times in the Gospels, what should we do? Pay attention, because when he says verily, verily, it means this is very important. (laughs) It means of a truth, of a truth, or amen, amen. What I'm about to speak is very important. Everything he spoke was important, but these things are especially important. He said that 
phrase 25 times in the Gospels, and three of those times are in John chapter 3. Again, showing us how important this uh, chapter is. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice his use of the word except. He uses that twice, by the way, in this passage. He uses it again in verse 5. He was telling Nicodemus that there is only one ticket. That's why I called this little section solitary ticket. There's only one ticket, one way to heaven. Being born again is the only way. There's no plan B. There's no alternative. Nationality, genealogy, religion, good deeds, all kinds of zealous obedience to the law, whatever, don't matter apart from the born again experience. Notice that the Lord Jesus was not intimidated by this religiously elite person. Uh, he, he didn't water down his message, even, you know, even though this was a high-ranking official. If he wanted to get along with the religious hierarchy of Israel, he sure went around doing, about doing it the wrong way, didn't he? First of all, by cleansing the temple and getting them all upset of their lucrative business going on in there, and then telling this prestigious man, you know, there's only one way to heaven, except you be born again. And we see that he's no respecter of persons because in our next week's lesson, we'll look at, he gave the same exact message to a one who was at the lower end of the social structure, ladder, or whatever you call it. In chapter 4, he, he tells uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who was on her sixth husband or man that she lived with that she, too, also needed to be born again. He, did, he used different words, but it didn't matter to him if you were at the top of the social status ladder or at the bottom. He gave the same message, and that's, you know, that's a lesson to us. We shouldn't change the way we give the gospel message depending on who the person is. He gave him this message because he saw into Nicodemus's empty, searching heart, and he, he told him the only message that could help him. Of course, it's the only message that can really help any human being, regardless of their status in life, as I just said. Nicodemus needed to be changed spiritually from within. He needed to be completely and fully born a second time. He needed to be born from above. By the way, the, the Greek word for again, born again, can also be interpreted to, to mean above. And when you are born again, you are born from above, right? Right? Because God the Holy Spirit comes from above to indwell you and to give you spiritual life. So he was saying to Nicodemus it was imperative for him if he hoped to see and if he hoped to enter the kingdom of God to be born again. A lot of, a lot of people, even within Christendom, don't like that word, that little phrase. Don't use that phrase. It turns people off. Don't say born again. But Jesus used it, so I'm not going to be ashamed to use it, and you shouldn't be ashamed to use it. It's interesting that the very first teaching, this is, by the way, the Lord's first recorded teaching in the Scripture. His first teaching concerns the new birth. Well, that's very important. That's very logical, isn't it? Uh, because uh, it's, a man cannot live before he is born, so why should he teach about how to live you know, the abundant life or the victorious life or the Christian life. Why would he bother teaching about that before teaching about how to be born? You can't live before you're born. Um, so that's interesting. This was his first recorded teaching. And that's also significant because there is no more important truth that we need for our lives. Uh, for not only this life, 
but for the life to come. Nicodemus responded to the Lord's statement about the new birth with two questions. How can a man be born when he is old, and can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now, I don't know if he was being uh, sarcastic here. I don't know if he was really just totally um, thinking that Jesus was talking about being born again, going back into his mother's womb. I don't know. One thing I do know from his response is that he did not understand what Jesus was talking about. But in his favor, at least he didn't argue with Jesus or even question why being born again was necessary. He merely asked how such a thing was possible. So he didn't respond with an argument, you know, like why, which would be argumentative. Instead, he responded with an astonished how. How can this be? And that was a more correct response, to ask how rather than why. And then Jesus proceeded to explain how a man is born again. In verse 5, he said, verily, verily, there we get that, this is another important verse. Verily, verily, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now we're going to diverse for just a minute here. This isn't in your notes, so you can look up. Mr. John Butler, in his, one of his books called Jesus Christ, His Encounters, makes us aware of the fact that there have been five different types of birth known to mankind. And I thought this was so interesting, I wanted to include this and share this with you. Five kinds of birth ever since the beginning of the creation. The fifth one is the spiritual birth. And I thought, wow, that is fascinating because five again is the number of grace, And the spiritual birth is by God's grace, because of God's grace. And those five births, according to Mr. Butler, are the soil birth, the surgical birth, the sack birth, S-A-C, the Savior's birth, and the spiritual birth, or the spirit birth, the born-again birth. Now, let me, when I tell you about each one of these, I'm going to give you, in addition to explaining the the birth, I'll tell you the opposition to that birth and the joy of that birth. You'll get it as we go. All right. The soil birth is the first one. And it refers to Adam's birth. Who was the first one born, so to speak, you know, since the beginning of time, as far as man is concerned? It was Adam. And he was formed out of the dust of the ground. So this is why Mr. Butler calls it the soil birth. Genesis 2-7. Now, the opposition to this miraculous birth, he was really created, you know, he didn't have a belly button, so he wasn't really born. The, the uh, opposition to the birth of Adam comes from the evolutionists, because, of course, they totally do not accept this. The joy of his birth was the joy that it brought to God. God said after he created Adam that it was very good. Then we have the surgical birth, and it refers to the birth of Eve, who was surgically created from one of Adam's ribs. Remember, God put Adam into a deep sleep, and then he performed some surgery on him. He took out one of his ribs, and he created Eve. No belly button either, right? No belly button in Eve either. Now, the opposite, unless I always say, unless God went, I made you and you. (laughs) I think of the Pillsbury (laughs) Doughboy. So the opposition to this amazing birth 
comes from the biologists who say, well, this is absolutely ridiculous. This could never be. The joy of this birth was the joy that it brought to Adam. He looked at her and said, whoa, man. (laughs) And so she's been called whoa, man, ever since. (laughs) Then there is the sack birth. Somebody's just been through this little episode not too long ago. That refers to the birth of all of us, the birth of all human beings other than Adam and Eve, because we have all been born from the water sack of our mother, the womb of our mother. Now, the opposition to the sack birth comes from the frailty of the human body, the physical body. So many babies and many mothers, you know, you look down through the ages of history, many have died, many have not made it during the birth process. The joy of this birth is the joy which obviously it brings to the parents and the grandparents. Then there is the Savior's birth, which refers, of course, to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he, he was conceived by a virgin. We call it the virgin birth, even though it was the virgin conception. The opposition to his birth comes from all those who reject the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus and thereby deny his deity. The joy of his birth is the joy that it brought to the entire world. Remember the angels in the heavens declaring glad tidings and joy into all the world. The fifth birth, and again, I emphasize it's interesting that it's five because that's the number of grace, is the spiritual birth. And this is the birth which is spoken of in the first teaching by the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, ye must be born again. This birth is produced by the Spirit of God, and it changes a man's final destiny from hell to heaven. The opposition to this birth comes from Satan and all those who oppose the salvation of men's souls. The joy of this birth, of course, is the joy it brings to God and all the holy angels. You know, every time a person is born again, the angels rejoice in heaven. And also the joy it brings to all the other born-again people, because we rejoice, too, when we see someone come into the kingdom of heaven. And who does it bring the most joy to? The one who is born again. Exactly. Now, so that was free. That wasn't in your books, but wasn't that? I loved that when I read that. I wanted to share it with you. There is an interpretive problem in the Lord's words, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, And uh, this concerns the word water. Now, all Bible scholars are agreed that when it says born of the um, water and of the spirit, they all agree that of the spirit speaks of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's pretty clear. There's no problem with that. But there are a number of views as to what the water signifies. I want to go through this really quickly because you have it in your notes and you can study it on your own. But some take the water to mean believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. But I have some major problems with this. Number one, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. That's the context. Always take it in the context. Nicodemus wouldn't have had a clue what what, uh, believer's baptism was. And so he he would be out to lunch on that. Secondly, if you add baptism to salvation, you are adding a work to to grace and to, uh, to faith alone. You know, in other words, you'd have to say, except a man be born again and baptized. He cannot see the kingdom of God. So I have a major problem with adding a work, and that's what that interpretation would do. Others say the water speaks of physical birth, and I have a big-time problem with this one because why would he say to a man 
existing right next to him. They're probably up on one of those rooftops talking at night. Why would he say to Nicodemus, you have to be physically born again? See, some say the water there refers to, again, the the water from the mother's womb when a person is born. So why would he say to Nicodemus, that's kind of what Nicodemus, how maybe he took it when he said, do I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? So that would be ridiculous. That one is, to me, I don't know why they came up with that idea. Another view says that uh, the water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. And this may well be uh, because it is possible to, to directly translate the Greek like this. Except a man be born of water, comma, even the Spirit. And the reason I say that is because you notice in your Bible whenever you have a word, in a ta- it's italicized. If you look in that verse, verse 5, right in front of the spirit, it's got of, and it's italicized. That means it is not in the original Greek. And then they tell these interpreters of this view, tell us that the word and in Greek is ke, K-A-I, ke, can also be interpreted even. So what they're saying is that the verse should read, except a man be born of water, comma, even the spirit. So they say that the water is the spirit. Um, the problem, and this may be, but the problem I have with this view is why would Jesus omit mentioning the word of God here when he's talking about how a person is born again? We know that the word of God has to be used in a person's salvation. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, just as there are two parents needed for a physical birth, man and woman, I believe there are two parents needed for a spiritual birth, they being the word of God and the spirit of God. So if you make the water the spirit, you only have one parent. And you omit, and it just doesn't seem right that Jesus would omit the word of God. Uh, Now, there is a fifth view. I'll throw this in. This isn't in your notes. I've read of this one lately. There is a fifth view that says that the water speaks of John's baptism of repentance. And um, they, they give some good reasons for that, but again, I, I have a problem with that because, it, well, mainly because we don't experience John's baptism anymore. So that would be my main problem with that view. Interpreting the water to be the word of God to me is the, is the most logical and consistent with the rest of scripture. Water is often, often recognized as a, a symbol for the word of God. Water, uh, The word like water cleanses and purifies. And uh, you can read some verses that I've given to you in your notes to demonstrate that. We do know the word of God is the instrument used by the Holy Spirit to produce new, the new birth, new life. King David even said that it was God's word that had quickened him. Quickened means brought him to life. And that's in Psalm 119.50. Paul said, in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel, which is the word. James said, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. I've already told you, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Peter said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God. Then in John 3, verses 6 and 7, the Lord revealed to Nicodemus why a new birth is necessary. There's the 
the word of God up there. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. It's a fundamental, fundamental law of the universe and one which is much repeated in the creation chapter of Genesis 1 that like things can only produce like things. If you were with us when we did our study on creationism, we saw over and over again how many times in Genesis 1 it says after his kind, after his kind, or after their kind. That repeated expression emphasized this truth, that like things only produce like things. That which is born into the vegetable kingdom only produces vegetables. doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that. That which is uh, produced in, or born in the animal kingdom only produces animals. There are no transitional life forms ever, ever, ever been found, and they never will be found. Um, and, and that truth carries on right up the tree, right up that kingdom tree or that pyramid that I had up here before. Um, that which is born of sinful man is a sinful child. A corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit. That which is born of Adam, which is all mankind, is transmitted Adam's nature. And because of Adam's sin, his fall, all born from Adam are sinful. Only God, only God can accomplish a rebirth of one already born of the flesh and thus sinful. Only God, you see, can transmit to that person his own sinless nature, which is what he does when he forgives a person and imputes Christ's righteousness to him and then indwells that person with his own spirit. Only God, therefore, can make a flesh person born again from above by his spirit and therefore eligible to enter into his kingdom which is what Jesus meant when he said that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Then in verse 8, Jesus drew an analogy to the amazing rebirth work of the spirit by comparing it to what? Oops, there's our... He compared the uh, rebirth work of the, of the Holy Spirit to wind. And what we, he was actually doing a word play here. He was giving a va- very good analogy, but he was also using a word play, which we don't see in, in the English, because the word for wind and spirit is the same Greek word, one and the same, pnevma. That's where we get our word pneumonia from, pnevma. Uh, <clears throat> no one sees the wind, right? You can't actually see wind. You can't see it, yet, and it's a pretty windy day. It's March, so it's windy. <laughs> yet everyone knows that the wind exists, by the evidence of its presence. We know it exists because we see trees bending. We feel our hair and see our hair blowing. And we can even hear it howl or whistle or whisper as it passes by. Although we can't physically see the wind, therefore, but we know it exists by the effects that it produces. Now here's an easy list that I have up here for you to think about some of the similarities between wind and the spirit, the born-again experience. Both of them are mysteries. There's much about the, the wind which is a mystery to scientists. As Jesus says here, he says they, they don't really know where it comes from and they can't really ever accurately, perfectly predict where it's going. Can they? 
I mean, even with our advanced technology, they don't always know that. There's a lot about wind which is a mystery. Both are mysteries. Um, of course, we know that the spirit, spiritual new birth is a mystery, pretty much. We, we, uh, we know that it happens, but we don't know exactly how it works, and etc. Anyway, both are mysteries. Both are free. You don't have to pay for the wind. Aren't you glad of that? <laughs> of course, I guess in essence we do when we pay taxes, we pay for the wind. But both are free. Both are inexhaustible. In other words, the supplies are not limited. Both are indispensable. And I won't get into all, all the scientific aspect of it, but if there was no wind on planet Earth, it wouldn't take long before we would all die. This world needs wind. And same thing with the spiritual birth. Without it, men die. They die the second birth, eternal separation from God. Both are invisible, and yet both are dynamically powerful. I guess if you've ever lived through a tornado or a hurricane or a typhoon, you really know the power of the wind. But still, it's invisible. Oh, I have invincible. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> I do have invincible up there, too. All right. Well, they're both invisible and invincible. So, but thankfully, even though the new birth is a mystery, we don't have to understand everything about it to benefit from it, do we? And he enjoys the evidences and the benefits of that new life. It's a fact. But as to how the spirit operated on the heart, you know, to convict that person, to, re to cause them to repent of their sin, to subdue their will, and then to create that new life within, all those things belong to the deep mysteries of God. Let's move on to the sad tragedy. And for this, we'll look at verses uh, 9 to 13. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said art, unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. We know that G uh, Nicodemus wasn't saved in this chapter because he didn't receive it. Didn't receive the Lord's witness at this point in time. Verse 12, if I told you, if I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Here, the Lord uh, Jesus is, or Nicodemus responds again to the Lord by saying, how? How can these things be? We see he still did not understand because the natural man receiveth not the things of God because they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But yet again, he wasn't belligerent. He was just bewildered. And that's good. That's good. And the Lord is very patient with a person like this. Nicodemus, who had been taught the many intricate and minute details of the law and the Pharisaic laws, now discovered, you see, that all of his religious training and education had left him high and dry when it came to the most important and basic truth of salvation. So the Lord Jesus went directly to the root of the problem. He went as he always does, he went to the root of sin, which is inside the human heart, where no amount of religious exercise can externally cure a person. You know, it's like a physician. A physician doesn't paint a person if they have cancer. That would do absolutely no good. The external does no good. 
the physician tries to get into inside the person to root out the cancer. So you and I, you know, we need to be reconstructed. We need to be born again from the inside out. The saddest tragedy in the world, and that's why I call this section the sad tragedy, is to me, I think the saddest tragedy is that there are millions and millions and billions of people who are so zealous and sincerely, sincerely religious, but they are totally on the wrong track, and they are doomed to an eternity apart from God. They are trying to come to God by self-effort by works because every other religion in this world other than Christianity is a works oriented religion but the simple truth of the matter is that even a three year old with absolutely no skills and no religious training and no effort can enter into God's kingdom just by trusting Jesus Christ and what he did for him the basic truth is that we are saved by grace through faith and that alone Salvation is just based on believing and receiving by faith that which Jesus Christ did on our behalf. Jesus told Nicodemus that he wasn't teaching him something new or or something even uh, theoretical or speculative. As a master of Israel, Nicodemus should have already known about the spirit birth. If you'll flip real quickly, because we're running out of time, to Ezekiel 36... Here's just one example from the Old Testament which should have clued uh, Nicodemus in on what Jesus was talking about. Just look at verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. If not, listen to me. I'll read it, and then we'll be right back in John. He says, uh, or um, Ezekiel writes, Then will I, this is actually God speaking, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, on and on, okay? Go back to John. So this wasn't something that should have been brand new to the thinking of Nicodemus. Then Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus that if he was having trouble understanding earthly things, how would he ever understand heavenly things? And even though the new birth is a is a birth from above, yet it is a birth which happens on earth. So that's where he's saying if you don't understand earthly things, things that go down on earth here, how are you ever going to understand Uh, the deeper mysteries of God's purpose in sending his son into the world, which is what he talks about in verse 13. And how will you understand about Christ's divine sonship, that he's always been the eternal son of God? He also mentions that in verse 13. Or how will you understand his relationship to the atonement and the salvation of man? In verse 14, that's what he mentions. And how a personal acceptance of him is in itself eternal divine life. In other words, when you accept Jesus Christ, you know you already have eternal divine life the minute you accept him you have eternal divine life Um, I think it's worth mentioning in verse 13 when Jesus said to Nicodemus that he came down from heaven he was claiming his pre-existence so he was really telling Nicodemus who he was wasn't he I mean he was saying I am from pre-existent eternity or that wasn't, but he was saying, I'm God, because the only one who is pre-existent is God himself. So he was claiming his deity, that he was pre-existent with God in heaven. And then in calling himself the son of man, in verses 13 and 14, what was he claiming? 
Nicodemus, if you came to check me out, I'm telling you, I'm not only God, I am the Messiah. Because the Son of Man is a term for Messiahship. If you want to see something really interesting, look at the end of verse 13 where he says, Even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, imagine the two of them sitting up on a rooftop talking. And here he's saying, I am in heaven. The Son of Man is in heaven. Nicodemus looks at him and he says, You're not in heaven, you're sitting right here. You know what Jesus was telling him there? That he's omnipresent. Not only was he there with Nicodemus, but he was also, because he's God, in the heaven. In heaven. I mean, these are some mighty, fantastic statements that Jesus was giving to Nicodemus. Nicodemus went home that night and probably didn't sleep at all, thinking about all this stuff. Okay, now we're going to close with this. And this is, I'll try to save the best for last. This is the serpent type that we're going to look at in verses 14 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. In a final attempt to open the eyes of this Pharisee, Jesus um, gives him a lesson in typology. And this is one reason why I like typology, the study of types, so very much. And I see the example that it was set by Jesus right away at the very beginning because um, this was how he sort of got Nathaniel's attention too, too, remember? When he told Nathaniel that he was the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder, the dream about the ladder. And now again, Jesus is using a type. So it's very biblical to get excited about types. He's saying that, uh, he's telling Nicodemus that the, the serpent on the pole, which Moses lifted up in the wilderness was a picture, prophetic picture of him. And, of course, we know of his crucifixion. So let's look at that. From Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, he taught this very learned Hebrew scholar the extreme value of typology. Now, what he did here is he reminded Nicodemus of the last miracle which God, through Moses, Performed before the Israelites went into the promised land. This was the last miracle before they went to the promised land. In the wilderness, the Jewish people had all been bitten by what? Fiery serpents. And that was done by way of divine judgment for all of their mumbling and grumbling. Remember, they had mumbled and grumbled for 40 years about all sorts of things. But here they were mumbling and grumbling about having left Egypt. Can you imagine? Egypt, where they were slaves. And had terrible lives. And yet they're grumbling about that. And they're grumbling about only having manna to eat. We're so tired of this food from heaven. This delicious, wonderful food from heaven. You, you know, and you remember the other thing God had done when they complained about the manna so much? They said, we want some flesh to eat. We want some meat. He gave them so much flesh to eat that many of them died. You know, manna is a symbol for the word of God. The bread of life. Jesus, that's another type. He said he was the manna came down from heaven. He is the bread of life. And then I think about how so many people in churches today complain about manna, manna, manna. All we ever do. Well, unfortunately, they're probably not complaining about this because so many have listened to them. But people complain about we get too much word taught to us. You know, that, I, I know a lot of women have left the Bible study because all, all they do is, you know, it's not fun, it's not entertaining, there's not even singing or whatever. I don't know what the complaints are. I try not to listen to them. But all we do is, is eat manna when you come here. 
And so a lot of churches have changed because it's too much manna, too much chant. We need some more flesh. Give us some more entertainment. And people are dying. Getting too much flesh. God gives them what they want. All right, you don't want the manna, I'll give you the flesh until you're sick of it. You throw up and you die. <laughs> All right, so they were complaining about that. <laughs> I can be pretty graphic. <laughs> they also complained about not having, I mean, everything they complained about was not true. They complained, what they were complaining about is doing things God's way instead of doing it their way. They said, wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? He didn't bring them out of Egypt to die. He was going to give them life. He was going to take him into the promised land. Um, they even complained about Moses, of course. You know, Well, in judgment for their endless complaints to God, there was death in the camp because God sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and much people of Israel died, it says in Numbers 21.6. Sin brings pain. It's painful to get bit by the serpent, and then it all, always brings, eventually, death. The pain and the death got the attention of the people. And so the ones that were su surviving confessed their sin and they turned to Moses for help. And Moses was always such a great leader and he was always so forgiving. He forgave them and he went to God on their behalf and God gave him a revelation, the word of God. He gave him the word of God on how if the people wished to escape judgment, which was death, they had to believe God's words through his spokesman, Moses. And see, this is a picture all of this is a picture of how we have to believe God's word through his spokesman, Christ. You see, Moses was a picture of, of Christ. God told Moses to have a serpent made out of a cross, uh, made out of, excuse me, out of brass. And uh, brass or bronze, symbolically in the Bible, speaks of judgment, speaks of judgment. And to affix that serpent to a pole, then the finished product which may well, as in this picture, have had the configuration of a cross. That, that pole with the brass serpent was to, uh, to be lifted up and placed down in a hole in the, in the midst of the camp, there in the wilderness, where everybody could see it. And the people were told that if they would simply look on it, you know, have enough faith to just look at it, Believe what God said. If you look at it, you'll be cured. You won't die from the snake bite. That they would be healed. That's pretty simple, isn't it? Just look at it. I'll tell you what, I'd look at it in a minute. If I'd been, I was bit by a, a copperhead two years ago in the summer. It was amazing. I got a little bit sick the next day, and I thought, what, what happened? Am I getting the flu or something? And didn't even, oh, I was, but the Lord... I didn't have to look at it. I don't know what happened there. I guess I can be a snake handler because I didn't die. I'm still here. Well, anyway. Um, now, some people, some people have gotten all hung up on how a, uh, how a snake, a serpent, could possibly be a type of the Lord Jesus. They think that this is a contradiction of his sinlessness. But really, nothing could have been more perfect to illustrate the character, the curse, the cross, and the cure of the Lord Jesus Christ. The character of Christ is portrayed uh, by the bronze serpent because being, as I said, being made of bronze speaks of, of judgment. We'll get back to that again. But being the fact that it was made of bronze <clears throat> meant that that serpent had no venom in it, right? It was made of bronze, so it had no poison in it. It was made in the likeness of a poisonous serpent. But it was totally 
harmless. Just like Jesus was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but yet without what? Sin. There was no sin within him. The curse upon Christ is portrayed by the bronze serpent because it illustrates the curse that our Lord experienced to become our Savior. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He literally on the cross became a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, of course, the figure of a serpent portrays the curse because it was the serpent, Satan, in the Garden of Eden who tempted man to sin so that the curse of God was brought on all of mankind. The cross, obviously, the cross is represented by the pole upon which the bronze serpent was uh, attached. I love this picture there because what he's telling him is really all a foreshadowment of, of the cross. Like Christ upon the cross, the pole was lifted up, then planted in a hole in the ground where it was readily visible to all who were snake-bitten. You know, the pole wasn't hidden back behind some big rock somewhere, was it? It wasn't in some corner. Just like the cross of Jesus, it was put where everyone could see it. Salvation is available to all who are willing just to look to Jesus and what he did for them on the cross. No one who was willing to look on that bronze serpent in the wilderness was excluded from being saved from death. Just like it says in Acts 2.21, Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Furthermore, and I like this uh, comparison, there was only one bronze serpent raised up on a pole. There weren't all kinds of different serpents. You know, take your pick. If you don't like the bronze serpent, you go over there and we have one made out of aluminum. And if you don't like aluminum, you can go over here and there's one made out of gold or silver. There was only one serpent. And there weren't many scattered throughout the camp. There was just that one. <clears throat> the single pole with that serpent on it was the single remedy that the people had to look upon to be cured of their fatal snake bite. What's it say in Acts 4.12? Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be uh, given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus himself said, I am the way, the one and only way. The cure of Christ is well portrayed by the bronze serpent lifted up on the pole. Um, Numbers 21.8 contains Moses' instructions to the people. He told them that when they looked upon it, they would live. That's the cure. The bronze serpent on the pole was their cure for the curse which had come upon them because of their sin. Bronze, as I said, speaks of judgment in the Bible. Christ on the cross of Calvary experienced the judgment of God. Why? Because he took our sins upon him. He willingly took our place. Like the gospel, the way of healing for the Israelites was very simple. It didn't take a, a person with a Ph.D. or someone who had gone through seminary or has a Master of Divinity degree to understand the way of healing. Even a little child could understand. It was that simple. It required nothing but faith. All they had to do was look at that serpent on the pole. There were no rules. 
There were no regulations. There were no rituals that they had to go through. They didn't have to stand in line and then pay money to look at the serpent. They didn't have to join a certain organization to be healed, the Look Upon the Serpent organization or some such thing. They didn't have to belong to a certain tribe. You know, only those of the tribe of Judah or only those of the tribe of Levi have our permission to look at the serpent and be healed. No one had to have the permission of some priest to look at the serpent and be healed. No one had to have the permission of their parents to look at the raised serpent and be saved from sure death. The curse also was God's idea, wasn't it? Moses didn't come up with this. Moses would probably never have come. Man would never have come up with something so simple. In fact, to most people, it probably seemed very foolish. I wonder if there was anyone in that Israelite camp that said, I'm not going to do that. That's so stupid. That's, it was a stumbling block to him or just utter foolishness. You know, medical officials and scientists would certainly have a heyday making fun of this idea that looking at a bronze serpent could cure anyone from a deadly snake bite. Wouldn't they? So that is just ridiculous. The gospel, which is God's plan for curing man's sin problem, is a stumbling block to many. And to even more, it's utter foolishness. Nonetheless, those who, in faith, are just simply willing to look upon the pole where Jesus Christ was hung and believe in faith that he hung there on behalf of them. He was, he made, was made a curse for them, and he received God's divine judgment in their place. They will be saved from eternal death. And it happens in a moment of time. Just like those that looked at the, the pole were instantly healed. They didn't have to go through a recuperation period. They were instantly healed. Just like you and I, when we trust, it, it only takes... Five seconds to get saved. We just trust in Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. Of course, understanding that we are sinners in need of his salvation, and we are instantly healed. These are some tremendous truths that, uh, and we haven't even touched the hem of the garment because we didn't get, let's read together the rest of it, okay? And we'll get a little idea of what else Jesus told Nicodemus, and then we'll close. Read with me John 3.16. Everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. I have to stop a minute and just explain one thing. What this is saying, and we need to understand this, to share this with our friends and lost loved ones, is that if, you're, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, you're already condemned. We're born condemned. Everyone is on their way to an eternity apart from, from God. We're all condemned already. But we, so we have to believe in Jesus to not be condemned. And I also want to point out how many times Jesus was telling Nicodemus who he was, the only begotten son of God. He not only told him he was the son of man, but he says he's the son of God who came down from heaven to save man. I mean, Nicodemus, he just, whew, he had so much to think about. You know when I think Nicodemus got saved, and this is just my own opinion, I think he got saved 
when he saw Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross. And all this came back to him, and he got it. I mean, you can differ with me on that. And that's one of your questions to speculate about. Verse 19 says, And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. Who is the light? Jesus. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. You know, people don't like being around you because you're a Christian. That's a compliment. If they hate you because of your light, that's a compliment. All right? Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. God not only declared his love for this world, but he went further and he demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for it. It was to Nicodemus that Jesus spoke the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God send his dearly beloved and only son to the world to die for it? Well, because this world was under the condemnation of Adam's sin, and it needed to be set free through Christ's substitutionary death for sinners. Those willing to believe in his death for their sins will not perish. In other words, they will not suffer the penalty of their own sins forever, throughout all of eternity. Instead, they are given eternal life in Christ, and they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God loved the world of lost sinners, and that's why he sent his Son into the world. He did not send him into the world to condemn the world. That was not the purpose of the Lord's first coming. He will, the second time he comes, he will condemn the world. But at his first coming, God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. That's what it says in verse 17. Jesus then made it crystal clear that people are already lost. They do not become lost when they refuse to believe in him. They are born lost because of the fact that they have inherited the Adamic sin nature. And they remain lost... Unless they do believe on Christ, he that believeth on him, Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's verse 18. And then the Lord went on to say that when light did come into the world, and that light, of course, speaks of Jesus Christ, people did not respond to that light because they loved their sin too much. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Men do not not like the light because of what it exposes. It reveals the darkness of their own sinful lives. Most people fight to hide from the Lord's revelation of light and truth. However, those who do come to the light, they come because they respond to the truth, which is that the one who brought the light himself is the light, and he is the truth. Christ wanted Nicodemus to respond to this very same truth and come to the light. You know, he was in the darkness of the night. Christ wanted him to come out into the light. He wanted him to come to himself, because in believing in him and believing in Christ and in his message, Nicodemus would then enter 
into the kingdom of God because he would be born again. So in response to that uppermost unspoken concern, which was on Nicodemus' heart when he came to Jesus in the first place, which was how can a person enter into God's kingdom, even though he didn't express that, that was what his concern was. Jesus Christ answered by teaching this learned teacher that the only entrance, the only way, the solitary ticket to enter into God's kingdom is to be born again through the truth which Christ himself brought to earth as God's messenger. And that truth is centered on him. It's centered on his life, on his sacrificial atoning death for man's sin and on his burial and on his glorious resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed all perishing sinners doomed to death because of the bite of sin. Yet all we need to do to be saved from death, from sure death, is to accept by faith the word of God given to us through the messengers, through the prophets, through the apostles, and through your Son. Lord, the words tell us to simply look upon Christ on the cross and believe that he died to pay the penalty for our sins. And that penalty, we know, is eternal separation from you. To do this, however, we do need to be willing to admit our need We need to know that the fiery serpent has indeed bitten us and that we are doomed and dying and we are hopeless and helpless without Christ. And then, Father, we must be willing to abandon all human effort and all useless remedies and religious exercises to cure ourselves because there is no human cure. Salvation is by grace through faith that whosoever believeth in the Son of God should not perish but have eternal life. And then we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord God, if there be one among us who has not yet been born again, I pray, and I know every born-again lady in this room prays, that this day would be the day of her spiritual birth, because we know it will bring great joy to your heart and glory to you and joy to us. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.